Our reading for the sermon comes from Revelation 1. Don't mind the bulletin, it's a little dyslexic. It's Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. Let me read to you now. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. my place. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, first of all, it's really good to be out here. Um, it's good to see some familiar faces from our uh, days in the western Washington, uh, the Maxfields and the Williamsons, as well as Craig. Uh, Craig and I work together at Christ Church Bellingham, one of your sister churches where I pastored for about five years. And uh, of course, we hit it off and enjoyed each other. Also came to bond over tacos and Mexican food, which is a deep love of ours, uh, shared love, along with the gospel, of course. Um, For the last three years, my family and I have been in Scotland. I've been working on a PhD and uh, training so that we could leave and go to Malawi, as Craig mentioned, and embed ourselves in a local Presbyterian seminary and uh, begin training pastors and really uh, begin to try to give them uh, all that we expect from our pastors. Uh, We expect our pastors to be given the best training and to be cared for and mature. And yet somehow we think that we often think that the African church can make it with less. And they have, but uh, our family has felt convicted to try and bring our best uh, to our brothers and sisters in Africa. And I'll have a little bit more to say about that. Uh, We leave this Friday uh, to Malawi. This is our long-term move. So this is our last Sunday in America. And it's a great pleasure to spend it with you. I won't be preaching about ourselves. Um, I when I preach, we preach with the gospel. So if you want to find out more, there are pamphlets of ours in the back, and there's also a sign-up sheet if you want to get our newsletters as well. We send those out maybe every other month, so it's not too annoying. Uh, we do still have some fundraising to do uh, for monthly costs, like ministry stuff and printing things for classes and vehicle maintenance, all the, all the good fun stuff. So let me pray before we dive into this uh, passage in our sermon. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you that you have built up this congregation. 
uh, a year ago, uh, this was not a congregation, and uh, yet you have been at work in Yakima even in the last year when none of us expected it. Uh, in fact, Lord, you continue to work all throughout the world uh, where we least expect it and when we have given up hope of you doing good things. And so even this morning as we come, many of us, no doubt, with heavy things on our hearts from this week past or perhaps worries about the future, uh, Lord, we, we come because you've promised to minister to us and to uh, do a work in our hearts and to do things that we couldn't expect And so we pray this morning that by your spirit you would break into those places in our hearts where we are uh, most tired, most afraid, uh, the places where we believe the least and that you would minister and bring belief and hope and sight of your face. Lord, give us this, we pray, because we uh, long for you. And we pray that you would even do this through my words in this sermon this morning. And so I offer it to you, Lord, and pray for your, uh, your strength and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, two things I want to give to you this morning. Uh, one is a deep conviction about the centrality of the church in God's agenda in the world. The other is, uh, Lord willing, a renewed or perhaps the first time a vision of Christ as the undaunted glory of his people. And the reason why I think we need to talk about these things is because after the last year, the church has endured a number of knockdowns. Uh, It's been a rough year for the church, not just this church, uh, but mostly uh, the churches who've been around for a long time. And I hope we can see why after all the church has endured, she is still worthy of our investment, Uh, buoyant and worthy of our hope as well. Um, And in fact, this is much of what motivates our own family's mission work and what God is up to in the world. He's building his church across the world. Uh, If there was a year to think the church would flop, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was this last one. Uh, For many of us who care about the church, as we watched the church all around the world shut down and kept from meeting, we all wondered when the church got back together, would there be anyone to gather? In Scotland, where we were, uh, we were locked down for about 17 weeks straight of lockdown. We could leave our house for about 30 minutes a day, one person from the family at a time, and uh, when we got back together as a church, we could only meet 50 people uh, in, the, in, in each church, despite uh, capacity. And, um, and that was from about mid-summer through October. And then things locked down again in Scotland up until about Easter this last year. Uh, and most of the time, we had really terrible online services <laughs> the rest of the year. So it was kind of bad. And we all wondered, you know, is there going to be anyone left together? Or is there any future of the church here? Uh, Before we left Aberdeen, I went on a walk with uh, one of the college pastors at our church who had been mentoring, and we were finishing up our walk, and I said, oh, you know, what are you up to next? He said, oh, I'm going to meet with this girl who's, uh, who started coming to our our Bible studies. Oh, that's cool. He's like, yeah, she um, told us that she never would have come to the Bible studies in person, but because they were online, she felt much less scared to try it out. And not only did she start coming to the Bible studies, but actually she's come to faith in the last year. He said, actually, there's a handful of people in our church who've come to faith even through our online services. And, I mean, they were really, really bad at the church we were a part of. And I think, wow, wow. Not only is the church still alive and thriving, but actually in the moment when we all thought, oh, surely this is it, everything's going to fall apart, the Lord was unflinching in his work of bringing people to know him. Right? I mean, there's even a new church in Yakima that got planted in the middle of a pandemic. What in the world? Right? The Lord is unflinching in his work. 
And, you know, part of this is just what it means to be a creature. You get to see this much of reality. Just a sliver of reality. And when that sliver of reality is largely full of good food and happy things and laughing and things work, it's not bad. And you trust the Lord's good to you and will care for you. And, but when that sliver, all you can see is filled with fear and pain and hardship, we all get overwhelmed. And we become even more narrow-minded, even more myopic, even more fixated. And so we begin to reach for quick fixes. And so in the last year in the pandemic, many of us amassed toilet paper, right? <laughs> hordes and hordes of toilet paper to last for the next decade. Uh, many of us who had long lockdowns with our kids started controlling our kids and micromanaging them. Um, maybe none of you, but that was true of me. Uh, or we start turning to uh, other coping mechanisms, right? Uh, we bought an Instapot for some reason. I don't know. Um, we needed something. It felt like it was going to help us, right? Or we turn to people we can blame. Uh, in Malawi, uh, many believers actually started turning to faith healers or to their local witch doctor to somehow avoid COVID and keep life the way it is. The point is we were also desperate for something to keep things normal. And in fact, I, I know this isn't just in Scotland and in Malawi. Um, I have friends who are pastors all across the U.S., uh, in numerous states across the U.S., and most of them told me just about the same thing. They said, yeah, you know, half of my congregation has been really mad at me. They felt like I've forsaken Christ by asking people to wear masks when they come into worship. And then the other half of my congregation thinks I've endangered all of our lives and forsaken Christ by asking them to gather for worship. And another part of my congregation is really... Uh, deeply offended and thinks I've forgotten the gospel by beginning to speak about some of the injustices that our black neighbors face on a regular basis, or our minority neighbors. And then another chunk of my congregation is furious with me that I might have something else to say than just talking about injustice all the time. Right? The point is actually not to help you figure out which, which of those is better, but to begin to demonstrate, friends, we have all been so desperate for someone to come and fix it for us. Right? We want someone to give us the silver bullet that's going to make it all better and figure out which team we can be on and tell everyone else they're idiots. The truth, the truth is that no one actually came out of this pandemic a winner. Has, has anyone been through a pandemic before? <laughs> Maybe some of you are really old. You went through the 1918 uh, Spanish flu pandemic. I don't see anyone that old in the congregation today. Most of us, this is our first time. None of us came out of this a winner. But the good news this morning is actually that we don't need our leaders to be winners or to figure out who can tell us who the bad guys are and fix things for us. Actually, John gives us a much better hope for the church. We have a crucified and risen Savior who reigns in heaven and reigns over the church and cares for the church. Amen? So that's what we're going to spend our time thinking about this morning. It's the Lord's view of his church and what he's up to. So I get, uh, I'm going to do three points. The church is at the center of God's agenda in the world. Uh, the church is lowly. Thirdly, Christ is the church's glory. And then you don't know this, but there's an unspoken rule in the PCA that if you're a missionary, you get a bonus point. So I'm going to get a bonus point, and we're going to talk about how they see this in the church in Malawi. Uh, Revelation is a book of unveiling the deep reality of what God is doing. You saw that in uh, one of the end of the verses there that 
John's being told what is as well as what's to come. There's a, there's a sense in which God pulls back the veil and John gets to see the kind of deep machinations of reality. What's really, what are the real levers and gears that are being pulled? And, you know, in contrast to most kind of mystery religions or self-actualization talk, uh, what we don't find in Revelation are the seven steps to self-fulfillment or the seven steps to secret knowledge or the 10 steps to get a, a Roman senator to become a Christian so that we can carve out a place of safety for ourselves. Nope. What we find in Revelation, when God reveals the deep reality of the world, is a vision of the glorious and risen Christ on the throne and his care for his people, the church. Look, the first words out of Christ's mouth in this book are in verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to whom? To the senators? No. To the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. To particular cities whom he knows well. The people in this place whom the Lord has a burden for. And then so when the risen Christ is revealed, we see him with the church on his heart. But also the church is in the literal foreground of the vision. I don't know if you saw that in verse 12. John turns to see who's speaking to him. And what does he see first? He sees golden lampstands. Right? And Revelation wants to make sure we know what those are. Those are the church, by the way. By the end of the passage, we find out. And so John has to kind of peek around them to see Jesus. And of course, the center of the vision is really about Jesus in his person. And we'll get to that. But what I don't want you to miss is that actually, when the, the, the glorious Jesus is revealed, he's revealed where? Standing among his people. Among his churches, surrounded by them, so that if you want to see him, you kind of have to go past the churches. And so when the deep reality of the world is glimpsed, we find Jesus in his glory, standing among his people, holding on to his, their leaders by the hand, with the church being the burden of his heart. And you know, Paul says something really similar in Ephesians 3. I didn't notice this until a few years ago. He says in, in Ephesians 3, his job is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Again, we're getting revelation language, right? Pulling back the veil. The mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church. God's brilliant idea of showing the whole world that he's wise and not a fool is the church. Plunky little congregations in every little corner of the earth. That's his plan. That's his plan. And that means that the church is actually the sun around which God makes orbit all heavenly realities, all earthly realities, all historical realities. God's kingdom, God's reign, his administration centers everything around what he's doing in the church. It's the center of gravity for what God is up to. And I think if we're honest, this should challenge us. For someone like me, I've spent years esteeming what top-ranked theologians think of things, and so I began to think, you know, where real clout is, where real wisdom is, is in places like Aberdeen or Oxford or other, you know, wonderful theological places. That's, that's where you're going to find it with those guys. Actually, no, these passages say God's wisdom is revealed through the humdrum ups and downs of the life of God's people, learning to forgive and live in faith. But it also is a challenge if we've drunken deeply of the lie that political parties are what we need to secure ourselves. If that's the real center of power, center of gravity, 
That if we can somehow get a political party on the side of the church, then then we'll be safe. Then we'll have a, a lever to pull that will keep us safe, keep us from persecution. And what Revelation and Ephesians say is that you have everything absolutely upside down if you think that the church or the Lord needs to curry favor with political power. No, political powers need to curry favor with the Lord. That's what Revelation says. But I think, honestly, it's also surprising. Look, if you've spent any amount of time in the church, you'd pro- if we're honest, right, there's going to be moments where you say, yeah, the last place I'd look for wisdom or joy or life or power or glory would be the church, right? Even pastors often will say to ourselves quietly without telling other people, if I could have the Lord without the church, I would. It'd be so much easier. What Revelation presses us to see is that if we distance ourselves from the church, we distance ourselves from the one who stands among her. So that's the first point. The second point, though, is that the church is lowly. Revelation says all of this while also speaking very frankly about the state of the church, both her sufferings but also her sin. It's no surprise that the church suffered much in the first few centuries. Um, John says that he is their brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. None of those are like glib, easy words, right? In verse 9, um, Christians in the first century, they, they were also weird, right? They worshiped a crucified Messiah and then gathered on Sundays to eat his body and his blood. That's weird. But they also disrupted things. Uh, one of my favorite stories is from Acts 19, where um, the gospel had come to Ephesus And so many people had begun believing in the Lord that local idol production had begun losing money, right? All the local idol producers who made statues of Artemis, their markets started disappearing. And they weren't making the money they used to, and so they were mad. And so they get everyone together, and I think the guy's name is Demetrius. It's either Alexander or Demetrius. He gathers together all the artisans, and uh, he's like, hey, you're losing money, I'm losing money too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, you know who the problem is? It's that Paul guy. He's ruining our market. You know what? They're still trying to say that Artemis isn't great. And so what's their solution? They start a riot and run into the city yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? They're ticked. They're ticked. Look, Christians weren't attacking the idols. What was happening? Christians were just being themselves, And by being themselves, they came in to disrupt and clash the setting of the world. That's what happens when Christians are themselves. And I think for most of us in Washington State, we can identify with those second two. We're weird and we disrupt things, yeah? Okay, the other thing that the church historically has suffered through is just poverty. It tends to be that the church is poor. And this is certainly the case in Malawi. Uh, Most churches struggle to keep roofs on the buildings not to mention paying their pastors. Most pastors have multiple funerals a week. Uh, There is no shortage of heartache for God's people in Malawi and no shortage of of heartache for God's people throughout time. Uh, We're somewhat of of an interesting uh, aberration, the American church. And it's in these moments when the church is so low and stricken that she doesn't look very glamorous. And so we have to ask, are we sure that God's wisdom and glory is coming into the world through the church. How could that be? But we also have to talk honestly about her sin. Look, even in the healthiest of churches, we have chronic failings where we let down the people in our care. 
And that's true even in our own souls and lives. We had chronic sins that betray and harm those around us. And actually, the wonderful thing about this passage is that Jesus doesn't say these lovely things while covering up our sin. He confronts it right on. He says about Ephesus in the next chapter, he says that she's abandoned the love she had at first. Pergamum and Thyatira both have members who have indulged in doctrines that don't simply allow sexual morality, but commend it. Sardis has become so wealthy that she doesn't care about the Lord. Laodicea has used her wealth to insulate herself from the needy and there by the Lord. And I don't know if you remember what the Lord says to Laodicea. He says, your devotion is neither hot nor what? Nor cold. I wish it were one of those. As it is, it's lukewarm and I want to. I want to spit it out. That's a term of disgust. That's not, we can't like get around that. That the Lord is disgusted with the way that her devotion has become more and more lukewarm. As she's used her wealth to insulate herself from the Lord and from the needy. And friends, there are days when I look at the church in Malawi and I think, is this hopeless? You don't know this about Malawi, but the church is massive there, but it's also full of legalism. I can count on two hands the number of times I've heard sermons in Malawi that actually have the gospel in them. Not to mention the rampant syncretism that happens. Numerous Christians will go and have their pastor, ask their pastor to come pray for them, and that was good, and then they'll turn and go over to the witch doctor, right? Isn't just more is more. And maybe you felt the same points at some time, uh, the same at some point in the last year that you wondered, is the church hopeless? If the church is so disappointing, how can she be so central? But the error in our thinking is this: that the disgust that we feel, or the harm that we've suffered, or the things that we see in the church, or the sin or the lowliness of the church, that those things actually repel Jesus' heart. That it makes Jesus withdraw the same way we do. But actually what this passage is here to show us is that actually Jesus has so deeply bound himself to the church that what those things do are pierce him. They grieve him. They stir him to act and to speak and to work for his church and to build her up. And so when we look at the sin and suffering of the church, we see that the church's glory is not our leaders or our people. It's the Lord Jesus himself. And that's our third point. The majority of this passage is taken up with describing and enjoying the glory of Jesus, and we would do well to do the same. Uh, Jesus walks among the lampstands, and he wears the clothes of the priest, but with royal exaltation. Uh, Here our priest bears our names on his heart and yet is exalted in the heavens and showered with glory and kindness from the Father. You know, that uh, Samuel passage we read will move on and begin talking about how the Lord's going to establish a faithful priest who will build a sure house. Here is our priest standing before the Father, bearing our names. His hair is white, but it's not because he's grown dull with age. Actually, his age is the source of wisdom. It's also the same wisdom and age that defeats death. So his age is an undying age. His white hair is a glorious white. He also has these eyes that glow. So instead of receiving light, he pierces the dark with his sight, with his compassion and care. He also has these bronze feet, which are an image of undaunted power. They can walk over anything. And he has this voice of power of the warrior coming and defeating. He's our undeterred king. 
He's also our prophet, though. He has a sword coming out of his mouth, a two-edged sword that pierces, that brings safety, that brings conviction, that brings healing. The Lord speaks to us. But more than all of that, you get the sense that what John is really fixated on is his face. The Lord has a face, and it's radiant. The full glory of the Father is poured out on the Son, and the Son then turns and exudes that and gives that to you, his people. So the reason why John gives us this description is not to hone his poetic skills. The reason is because this Jesus is our salvation. Like Simeon, we can say if we've seen Jesus, we have seen the salvation of the Lord. This glorious one is the gospel himself. He is ours. And so I just want you to think over the last year, maybe even the last four or five years, with all of the uncertainty and the tumult and the places of darkness and the places where you felt like giving up, and I want you to ask, is the Lord, is this glorious one, is he sloppy with you? Is he reckless with you? No. No, because the same glorious one that John talks about is actually the same one who's cared for you this last year, who knows you by name, and who would never ask you to suffer or endure things that he himself has not already. And so Christ is not only the hope of our survival, but actually he's the one who grows the church into her victory. So with us thinking about the church and thinking about the Lord, our, the way we think about the church changes as we see Jesus. And it changes in a couple ways. First of all, it changes the way we think about the church's glory. The church's glory is a cruciform glory. That means it's shaped like the cross. It, it's, it, the grammar, the pattern, the feeling, the smell of the church is the smell of the cross. That that's actually what shapes our glory. And that means that the church will be glorious and we will have victory and we will win the day, but we're going to do it like Jesus did it. And what is, how does Jesus describe himself in verse 18? I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And so the pattern for the church is actually embracing the cross now for the glory and honor and vindication the Lord will bring later. That's the whole pattern of the Christian life. Suffering, humility, lowliness now, thinking little of ourselves, giving space for others, honoring others so that the Lord will honor us later. And it could be, even be that I am humble and, and dishonored and lowly Thursday, and by next Tuesday, the Lord shows up, and there's something good and glorious that reminds me that he's kind. But it's also much bigger than that. It's the whole pattern of our lives that actually, as we embrace the cross more and more and more, the Lord assures us that he will give us more and more of a share of his glory that is coming. And that's the whole image of Revelation. The lamb has overcome. The lamb who? Who what? The lamb who is slain has overcome. That's our pattern. And so that means that we actually can't judge the success and the hope of the church by how much cultural sway or political power or how great she looks today. The church, by and large, is going to always kind of look like a mess because that's what she's called to do. She's called to bear her cross in the world with the promise that the Lord will redeem and bring glory. And in fact, the, the funny thing is, and if you've lived long enough, you know this, that it's actually through the church's suffering, it's through the church's shame and persecution that the Lord brings defeat 
that the Lord defeats evil and brings victory to his church. What happens when you lock up North Korean Christians and put them in jail? They convert their cellmates, right? And all of a sudden there's revival going on in these labor camps. What happens when Boko Haram and ISIS kill an entire village of Christians in northern Nigeria? Everyone in Nigeria says, yup, Boko Haram and ISIS are evil and the Christians are innocent. We want to be with the Christian God. And what happens when you lock down the church for a year? The Lord saves people. Right? It's actually when we're least powerful, we show up the Lord, we, the Lord shows up in the most powerful ways and shames the powerful and the wise and shows that he is undeterred, undaunted. His reign continues. But it also changes the way we think about sin in the church. Look, the driving power of Revelation is Jesus. You read through Revelation, every page, the one who's acting and ordaining and sustaining and renewing and bringing life and bringing judgment and controlling all things is the Lord Jesus on his throne by the Spirit. And he does it in and through and even in spite of the church. And so we can look squarely at the sin in the church and say, the Lord is the one who saves. He will renew his church. He will bring her to repentance. He will revive her. And so we can share in his victory and in the hope of the church because we share in his spirit, because the Lord is undaunted. I don't know if any of you have ever watched the uh, Marvel Avengers movies. My boys and I have been watching those this last year. And one of our favorite characters is Captain America because he's buff, right? He's so huge. And uh, he has some sort of German secret sauce special technology in his body that if he gets hit shot, you know, his body heals itself quickly and he comes back and beats up the bad guys. And without fail, every Marvel Avengers movie, this is a spoiler, <laughs> he gets beat up by the big galactic baddie, you know? Uh, whatever from whatever galaxy comes and pounds his face and some, some sort of galactic rock comes and smashes him and Captain's down. And you think Captain's dead. You know, this is it. But then what happens? He gets back up. And what does he say? I could do this all day. Yeah, Captain, get him. And then, you know, sure enough, he kicks the guy's button. Yeah, we win. Look, that's a really actually tremendous image of the church. The great hope and victory of the church is not that she will not be knocked down but that she will continue to get back up over and over and over. The church will be revived and will grow. So now for my bonus point. Uh, I just want to help you see these things in Africa because sometimes we don't get to see enough of what the Lord's doing in the world. A century ago, 1% of Christians in the world were sub-Saharan African. 1%. Actually, it's like 0.9. As of today... 25% of Christians in the world are sub-Saharan African. 25. That means if you got us all in a room, one out of four people would be sub-Saharan African who are Christians. In fact, in Africa, there are 631 million Christians. That's almost double the population of the entire U.S. That's astounding. Now, the first point here is to say, oh my goodness, the Lord is undeterred in his reign. And the kingdom is growing and growing, and it grows all without us, right? The Lord doesn't need us. The Lord is growing things, and it's fantastic. The Lord is growing things, and his reign is undaunted. The kingdom is much bigger than America and much bigger than the PCA. Praise God. But there's also a call to invest in that growth, because not all growth is good growth. Look, the reality is um, 
the grand majority, like 99% of seminaries, um, theologians, scholarship, discipleship curriculum, campus ministers, uh, children's curriculum, all are from North America or Western Europe. In fact, I found one systematic theology written by an African theologian. One. Um, The denomination we're going to go and minister in, uh, the CCAP, which is the main Presbyterian denomination in Malawi, uh, doesn't even have enough ministers in their congregation, in their uh, denomination. In the PCA, we have about 5,000 teaching elders, such as myself and Craig and um, and Mike and Pete here. Um, and so the average ratio in the PCA of minister to congregant is about 1 to 75. Now look, if you had 75 people that you were responsible for, you'd be getting a whole lot less sleep, right? You'd be drinking a lot more coffee and you'd be praying a lot more and crying a lot more. I'm just going to guarantee that. That's a lot of work. In Malawi, the average ratio of pastor to congregant is 1 to 2,600. One to 2,600. So just imagine over the last year of your life, if you were one out of 2,600 people, what kind of care would you have received? How well would your pastor have known you? What, What kind of time would your pastor have had to prepare sermons? What's the status of discipleship in your church if you're one out of 2,600 people? Again, not all growth is good growth. The church in Malawi is huge, but it's struggling. And so our call has been to invest and shape and give ourselves to the growth and maturity of the church there so we don't see cancerous growth. And that's the work we've committed to. I'm going to be training pastors in theological education, investing in the theological infrastructure there and seeing seminaries grow and be strengthened. My wife is a trauma counselor and is going to be working with um, a program that engages uh, in therapy with girls who've been sexually abused from ages 16 down to age 3. And she's going to be actually doing training with Malawian counselors and investing in Malawian counselors. And you know what? The reason I can say that so happily is because we've been invested in by churches in the Northwest, by churches like St. Andrews. Uh, The Lord has enabled us to do that. But the bigger point of this text for you and I is that you and I can invest in the church even when she looks hopeless because Christ has still bound himself to her. He's not removed himself when things look nasty, when things look hopeless. He has bound himself to renew and strengthen her. He will bring life and victory and glory to the church in Africa. And if you're in ministry, the great thing you get to enjoy is you get to be on the front row seats of seeing what the Lord's doing, seeing how the Lord's bringing renewal, bringing life. The question for all the rest of us this morning is will you step out in faith to actually invest in what the Lord is doing in Africa, certainly, but also here in St. Andrews. To give yourself in faith that the Lord will bring renewal and that you can invest yourself in what he's doing here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you have built your church uh, against all odds throughout every century. Lord, we think of the terrible persecution your people suffer across the world even now and that You build your church uh, in the Middle East, um, numerous conversions in Iran and other places we would never think of. And so, Lord, we take confidence in that, that you will not forget us, will not forget your people here in Yakima, that you will continue to build up uh, all of your people. Lord, we pray for your spirit to revive and bring hope and life.
In Jesus' name, amen.